you'll hear people pose this question. Hey, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Anybody ever, have you ever asked anyone that one? Just sitting around? And, and so this time of year, you'll hear all different kinds of answers. But just kind of jog with me for a second. What's your favorite Christmas movie? And you'll hear people in the South go Christmas vacation because some of these people in this church identify with Cousin Eddie. Anybody there? <laughs> Christmas vacation is my favorite. You'll hear some say Elf. Any Elf fans in here? In the first one, I said, we got any elfers, and I had to clean up my thought process because that could lead people astray. So it's like, any, anybody really like the movie Elf? Yeah. How about, how about people uh, in here, any Grinch fans? Yeah, Grinch, you like Grinch? We, we were watching one a few years ago, uh, heard that Robin Williams, his last movie he ever made uh, was called Merry Frickin' Christmas. So we watched it, and I can promise you that... Uh, it has nothing to do with Jesus. We watched one uh, this week called The Christmas Chronicles. Anybody seen that one? First time I'd seen that one, but it's like uh, it had nothing to do with, with, with Jesus. Have you noticed out of all the movies that we call Christmas movies, about the only one that has reference toward Christ is Charlie Brown? Not joking. And, and then, then for many of us, not only do we lean in, we're going, what is your favorite Christmas movie? Well, most of the Christmas mass of Christ, Christmas movies are Christless movies. I, I mean, really, if you start to play it out, this time of year is probably as Christless as any time of the year, even though we call it Christmas. What's your favorite song? Oh, Grandma Got Run Over by uh, Reindeer. Which implies she was probably hammered and it has nothing to do with Jesus. Right? Right, Kenneth, I mean, we, we've heard that song. And it's like, oh, that's a funny one. You'll hear people sing uh, Rudolph and Frosty and, and. And, and here's, here's, a, here's a crazy thought. We've got a Christian radio station here in Atlanta, 104.7 The Fish. And if you listen to a lot of the songs that it plays during Christmas, it has nothing to do with Christ. But it's a Christian station. And it got me thinking that how, as a culture and even as a, a church culture, oftentimes we've embraced this commercialized uh, narrative that has nothing to do with Messiah Jesus. So I wanted to kind of take you back with me today to what the real meaning of Christmas is all about. And in case we, we've gotten lost in the holiday shuffle with the way Westerners do it, I think it's important to kind of tap the brakes and go, what is Christmas all about anyway? There, there's a verse in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, and we have beheld the glory of God. John 1.14, what is it saying? It's saying that there was an event that happened some 2,000 years ago that radically changed history. What it's saying is the Creator, the God of all creation, decided to put on a robe of flesh and come and live with lost, filthy, dirty humanity. And that's what it's saying, that the God of all creation moved into our neighborhood and hung out with us. 
That, my friends, is the intro to the Christmas narrative. The Word became flesh. The Word, the Logos, the incarnate one became human. Probably my favorite text to look at when it comes to really understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do at Christmas time is Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. A lot of people love to go back and look at the angel of the Lord speaking to a virgin and saying, behold, uh, God has found favor with you and you're going to conceive or the angel showing up in the field where shepherds were keeping their flock and shepherds only kept their flock in the fields. If you study history over in Israel, they only kept their flocks in March or April, so Jesus was probably born in March or April. Uh, uh, people love to go to these kind of texts, right? L let, me, let me give you a little sidebar before I kind of get into the Philippians 2 piece. I think it's worth paying attention to. There was a celebration back uh, right after the time of Christ. Even in the time of Christ, there was a winter solstice kind of celebration that took place in mid-December, right after December 21st, the shortest day of the year, and many had ascribed December 25th to kind of like this pagan festival. And Constantine, when he built the city of Constantinople and uh, made Christianity the state religion in the early 300s, around 330, 340, 350, they started to worship and celebrate Christ's birth as December 25th because he really was attempting to create a day that would kind of give Christ's followers a replacement to the pagan stuff that was going on. Kind of like, we're cute here at the Cross Loganville. We don't do Halloween. We do a fall festival because we wanted to create an alternative. If you go back and study it, it's probably the reason he did that. Is that a trip? And, and, and most scholars believe, if you study it from a Jewish perspective, Jesus was probably born more, again, in the spring of the year, probably March or April, and, and, it, and it jacks with us, but, but, it, but, it, but it doesn't matter because I'm about to unpackage this, and here's the fact. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we celebrate Jesus' birth every day that God would become flesh. So, so whether the 25th or whatever day you want to kind of get hung up on, we're, we're not going to get lost in the confusion because God has come to earth. Now, Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5, he says, uh, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. H have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not boast and grasp it as something of equality with God. That's what the text says. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant, a servant, and the scripture says he was made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Consider Jesus. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ, that he became obedient, obedient to the point of death on the cross. And God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every and he will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Have this attitude in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. I want to make three observations. Here, here's the, the three. It's simple when we pause to contemplate the Christmas narrative. One, God came to earth. Two, God came to earth as a man. Three, 
God came to earth as a man in Christ to die. That's the Christmas narrative. Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God because he was God. The word form that is used here in Philippians 2 is used one time in the entire Bible. And the way it's used here, it means this. He existed before he ever had flesh. He existed in the form of God. Before he ever had flesh, he already existed. He was Emmanuel before he became flesh, before he became the Christ. That's what it literally means. It means that he didn't start when start got started. He started start and he didn't begin. When the beginning began, he began the beginning. It means he's existed before there was a such thing as time. He existed in the form of God. He was God before he ever took on flesh. Now, there's some people in our society, even scholars, people that kind of lean toward atheistic and agnostic views that will say this. Jesus was a, a great moral teacher. He was a great prophet. He was a great leader. Yeah, that, that's just all he was. But the problem is the Bible never declares that, and Jesus never declares that he was a great teacher, leader, just a great example. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am God. The Bible says he's God. I was reading C.S. Lewis, and he made this statement. And he said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He goes, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Lewis adds, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that option up to us. When Jesus comes on the scene, he declares, I'm God. God has come to earth. The angels, when the angels appear to the shepherds in the field, they're declaring, glory to God in the highest because God is about to come to earth. God has come to earth. And so this narrative that we celebrate is not about just shepherds and stars and whatever that we get lost in. It's not about some little nativity that we show up and see these animals and, oh, that's cute. The true Christmas narrative is God has come to earth and Jesus claimed to be God. Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. Of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. All things have been created through him. All things have been created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What are you saying? I'm saying 
that Jesus' declaration, the Scripture's declaration is, he's God. He's not less than, he's not a little a God, as Mormons and JWs would conclude. Jesus Christ is God. He's God. He is the exact likeness of God. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. Jesus said, before Abraham even existed, I am. Jesus says, I predate Abraham. I predate David. I predate Jacob. I predate them all because in him, he created all things and all things are made by him and for him and are held together by him. So when we stop and ponder the Christmas narrative, we're pondering, God came to earth. We talked about the book of Revelation, the Greek word there is the word apocalypse, and it means to unveil and reveal. And when we stop and we ponder Christmas, it is the revealing of God in flesh. He's God. The second thing I would share is God's come to earth, but God has come in the form of man. The scripture says he emptied himself. Emptied means he laid aside certain deistic privileges that he had in heaven when he took on flesh. He emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant because he was always fully God and fully human from this point on. He was made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. Jesus Christ willfully became a human. He was a real human being. He had flesh like you and I. He had hair like, well, some of y'all. Stuff is faded. But he had hair. He had blood. He was a human body. He was a human person. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't some fictional character. He was born just like you and I. The scripture uses the word incarnation when you study it. The incarnate one, which means the one that existed, took on flesh. That's what incarnation means. It means that God became like you and I in human form. He laid aside certain deistic privileges for a 33-year window to identify with us. I started thinking about this like, man, this is so powerful when you think about it, Chad. He was born like you. He was, yes. I've had people say, man, isn't it cool that we celebrate Christmas, the miraculous birth? I go, no, it's not a miraculous birth. It was a miraculous conception, but it was just a birth. Mary gave birth to Jesus just like my mom gave birth to me, like Barb did to our five. He was born like you and I. And God could have put on he could have put on a fireworks show and he could have sent all these announcements saying, y'all are not going to believe what is about to happen. I'm about to close myself. He didn't. He went low key. He was nonchalant. It was just some shepherds heard it and really nobody else. Uh, matter of fact, they knock on the door and they're like, man, we ain't got no room. Y'all can chill in the stable behind us, but it was nothing special. He was born like you and I. Why would God come in such a way? I mean, you've got to ponder the question, right? Why would he be willing to enter humanity with such no notoriety, no fan approval, and no, why in such poverty and impoverished conditions? Why? Because he wanted to identify with us. There's nobody that's going to be lower than what I'm willing to become. 
He was 100% God, 100% man. He never stopped, but he was born just like you and I. Here's the second thing that's interesting. When you start to think of, he became man. He grew like you and I. He was a young boy. He went from a baby nursing to becoming just a little boy. He had growth spurts and probably growth pains. He went through puberty. He, he went through a growing time. The scripture says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and in favor with man. Jesus grew. He was a human being that grew just like us, saying, hey, I can identify with you. I know where you're at. I've been a teenager before. I've battled it. I, I know what it's like. He grew just like you and I did. Does that comfort you? Yeah, it, it, it comforts me. So, so you, I mean, I just turned 56, and he tapped out at 33 because of his willful walk on the Via Della Rosa. But I think a lot of teenagers at times look at Christ and a lot of people who are struggling through this transition, and he's like, I, I've been there. I, I've been there. I grew just like you did. Now, it, it would have been a trip living with Jesus, right, in his day. It would, it would probably have been kind of rough being his teacher when you were teaching science or whatever, and he gave an answer, and you're going, well, Jesus, that's really not right. And he goes, no, ma'am, that's really the right answer. And I mean, I don't know how you teach God, but he made himself a servant of others. I don't know what it was like being a family member like James. It really had to suck being James. Right? The half-brother? Because with five kids, we try not to make these kind of statements, but it's like, I wish you would be more like your brother. That was a hard comparison for James to live up to. You want me to be more like my brother. It's like, that would have been a, a trippy thing, right? We were sitting there having dinner last night, and there was a table full of people, and I'm, I'm like... Did Mary or Joseph or James ever sit there going, God is at my table eating soup? I don't want to screw up the salt and the ingredients in this one. From, But he grew like you and I did. He experienced what, you, here's another thing, he was tempted like you and I. The scripture says in Hebrews, he was tempted just like you and I yet without sin. And if there was one thing that comforted me when I first came to faith in Christ back in 1985, it was Jesus Christ was tempted like me. Thus, he can identify with these temptations, these desires, these twisted things that I'm in my flesh desiring to gravitate toward. He can identify with me. My, my buddy, Al Egg, who's from Portland, Oregon, I met Al in 1986 at a conference, and we started spending time and I'd only been saved for a year. I'd been walking with Jesus for a year, just getting into the Word and praying for a year. And Al looked at me at this conference I was at in 1986, and he goes, hey, I've got a, a couple of books. There's a, a publisher up close to where I live called Multinomah. This was 1986. And he goes, I've got two books I'd like to give you if you would be open to reading them. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, there's this new author that just came out, and very few people know him. He's a missionary dude, and he's moved to the States, and He's going to settle in, 1986, and he's like, these two books, uh, one is called God Came Near, and the other one is called No Wonder They Call Him the Savior by this guy by the name of Max Lakeda. Would you read them? I'm like, yeah, I read them. Now, now you type in Max Lakeda, and he's written 100 books or whatever it is, but back then, 
And I remember reading, God came near, and no wonder they call him the Savior, and it put flesh on Jesus. Jesus was a real person. He was not this distant deity. He was this compassionate God in flesh. And I remember reading that going, wow. He was tempted like me. He, uh, he overcame temptation. So he can identify with what I'm going through. Yeah. He, he went through everything, all this pain, all this temptation, yet without sin. I'm telling you, it changed me because I started praying to a God who was my Savior who could identify with me, not a distant one. And now, when I talk to Jesus, I talk to him as my Savior, my Lord, my Master, but my big brother going, hey, you lived here and you know what this struggle is like, yeah. But I want to walk you through it, and I want to rescue you, and I want to strengthen you while you're going through it. I can relate with you. And can I tell you today, as we come in here to celebrate this Christmas narrative, the Christ of Christmas, the Savior that we celebrate can identify with your pain, your hurt, your turmoil, and your struggle. There's hope available for you today. The phone call that I got at 9.30 on Friday night from my pastor friend in North Atlanta. And I was like, man, we're at this kind of gathering and I couldn't take it and I hit no. And 60 seconds later, there's a text that, brother, I just wanted you to know that Blank's daughter, 17 years old, committed suicide this afternoon. I'm like, how did she get to a place where she believed there was no hope? How did she get to a place where she believed that there was not a savior that could identify with her? What was the level of her pain that that became an option for her, that little 17-year-old girl? So, so you're sitting here with me today. Let me, let me tell you, there's hope. Don't throw the towel in. Please don't. Whatever the pain, whatever the struggle, whatever the difficulty, this is the first time you're going through the season without that loved one or family member after being betrayed and rejected. There's hope. We want to intercede and pray with you. We've got a space at the end of our time. We want to pray over you and with you. We'll anoint you with oil, but there's hope in Christ. There's a Savior that's here today that can identify with your struggle. He's been tempted, and he wants to meet you and love on you today. And he suffered like us even much more when you start to study it, he felt pain, he felt disappointment, he felt betrayal, he felt rejection, he felt hurt. W whatever you felt, he's, he's felt, he's felt death. Matthew 26, 38, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the scripture says, this is Jesus crying out, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. I know what it's like to have grief in the heart. I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like to have pain, heartaches, and pressure going on. I know what it's like. But, but I want you all to know that I've become one of you to identify with you. I've become what you are so that you, through faith in me, can become what I am. Uh, to those I foreknew, I also conformed and predestined to shape and mold them to be just like me. I, I want you to know, I, I see you today. 
I want you to know I love you today. I want you to know I made you in my image. I've redeemed you with my blood. On the third day, I conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm for you. Which leads us to the, the fact that Jesus came to die. God in Christ came to die. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, what, what's up? Well, I didn't come to stay in a crib. I, I didn't come just to turn a few loaves of bread and fish into enough to feed 5,000 plus. I didn't come just to do tricks and treats. I didn't come just to hang out and lay hands on some water so y'all could sip wine. I, I, I did miracles, cool. But I didn't come to stay in a crib and just do miracles, and I didn't come to just be a cool teacher. I, I came to die, really. I could have called 10,000 angels when I was hanging on the cross to rescue me. I could, have, I could have cut all this stuff out, but I didn't want to because I came to die. Because the soul that sins must have blood atoned for it, and I came to die to shed my innocent, pure blood. This reason John the Baptist, when he saw me, he goes, wow, behold, there is the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was sacrificed annually at Yom Kippur. John goes, no, 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 I'm not talking about a lamb, animal lamb. There's the lamb of God. God in flesh, the lamb that will cleanse and take away sin once and for all. I came to die. No, I, I came to walk the Via Dolorosa. I came to do three plus years of public ministry, but I really came to die. That's the Christmas narrative as we pause, we go, this story is much more about a cross than it is a cradle. Then you, you got to really, you, you do, you have to stop and you go, why did you go to the cross? I mean, you do, you, you, you've got to stop and say, why would you die a criminal's death? And, and this is the craziest thing. And I want you to think about it. Why did you die a criminal's death? Why would you go through what you went through? Why would you suffer the betrayal and the harsh, the harsh treatment of being spit upon and cursed and crown being thrust through and spear and why? This is it. Listen, listen, listen. To demonstrate God's love. You, you died to demonstrate God's love, yes. You, you laid yourself down to be crucified, to demonstrate God's love. That's right. And John would pin it in John 15. Greater love. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And I no longer call you servants and slaves in distant kind of terms. I call you a friend. Really? Paul would write it in Romans 5. God demonstrates his love toward us. That even though we were still yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Really? Yes. The Christmas narrative is a narrative of generosity. It's God going, man, I love y'all. 
I made you in my image. You jacked it up. You turned from me. You pursued less wild lovers and things of the world. You sinned. I even provided an, a, an animal sacrifice in the garden. I took the skin, covered y'all because that fig leaf junk wasn't working. But I had a plan that some 2,000 years later, I would clothe myself in flesh. I would come and I would dwell with humanity, live with humanity, identify with humanity, suffer, be tempted, and I would willfully die because God's love demanded a sacrifice and I was willing to become the sacrifice once and for all. And they placed me in the grave. And on the third day, I was resurrected and I, I'm now seated at the right hand of the Father and I live to make intercession for you. That's, that's, that's the Christmas narrative of me coming, me living, me identifying, me loving, me dying, me raising, and me still being here to chase after your heart even when you've walked away from me. First Peter chapter 2 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore it so that we might die, take my sin, and we might move toward embracing the righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I walk in here today and God says, I, I know you've jacked some things up in the past and I, I, I know I've dealt with that once and for all. And Your sin, you, I've already bore it, past, present, and future. The sin you committed before you asked me to save you, the sin you committed after you even came to know me, I, I, I've already bore it. Now, I want you to walk in righteousness because I declare you righteous and I, I want to clothe you in my righteousness every day. Yes, that's what you want to do. Yes. So what's the story? The Christmas narrative. Jesus demonstrates the generosity of heaven's heart. I love you. I'm for you. I want to redeem you. I've paid the price. You've got to be willing to repent and submit. But the price is paid, and righteousness is available. Hope is available. Is he enough? Yes. Does he care? Yes. Can he change whatever your narrative has looked like? Yes. Some of you walk in here today, and you're like, I've, I've ruined my life. They have it. You have it. If you'll come to total surrender, he goes, I want to change you. I can change your narrative, but I'm God. Don't miss the Christmas narrative. We celebrate Jesus, the Christ of Christmas.